a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Okay, I think I brought 95% of my voice today, so, you know, I got that going for me. And I'm glad you're here. Welcome to a place where we revel in wrong think. This means challenging some of the prevailing narratives and, above all, trying to think as clearly and independently as possible. And as you're going to see in the course of today's show, there's a very concerted effort to try to keep us separated from reality. In fact, it's kind of, that's one of the the measures of uh, are you being a good citizen or not is uh, are you willing to deny reality? I got details on that coming up in a few moments. Our program is brought to you by MonticelloCollege.org, also LifesavingFood.com, and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Well, here's a great place to start today. Let's talk about the divisions that have been created by the various COVID policies, among other things. There, there are other things that are feeding this, but it's been very interesting to watch how divided we've become over issues like masks and vaccines and social distancing and lockdowns and so forth. And I understand it's super tempting to categorize people who hold a different point of view than you do as being evil, being either evil or stupid. I mean, this is kind of the default setting for, I think, a lot of us, and I've been guilty of this, too. What? You don't agree with me? Well, you are either motivated by pure satanic evil, or you're just stupid. You know, if you had a brain, you'd be outside playing with it. And that's not true. That's, that's, that's not correct. See, the reality is most of those who hold views that, uh, that lean very heavily towards, you know, greater authoritarianism, more control, more uh, top-down dictates telling everybody this is how you're going to do it, has to do with the fact that people are simply afraid. And I came across a great article by Thomas Harrington. This was published on the Brownstone Institute's uh, website, brownstone.org. If you haven't subscribed, there is marvelous information. This is one of the best resources you could have in terms of having a good, objective take on particularly some of the COVID things. But uh, Thomas Harrington describes the frightened class and how they have bought into the fear that's being pumped at us around the clock. He says they're all around us, especially those of us who live in relatively prosperous metropolitan neighborhoods in the U.S. or Western Europe. And despite being, at least in material terms, among the most fortunate people who've ever walked the earth, they are very scared and they want you to be very frightened, too. In fact, many of them see your refusal to be frightened or as frightened as they are about life's inevitable risks. They see that as a grave problem, which entitles them and their often powerful and influential fellow travelers to recur to all manner of authoritarian practices to ensure that you adhere to their increasingly neurotic view of reality. Now, this tendency, he says, has been in full bloom lately as the people who've sat safely behind their laptops during the past 20 months have harangued and threatened those who've been out on job sites and meatpacking plants mixing freely with others and the virus to internalize their own obsessions. 
Thomas Harrington says, and when these supposedly ignorant others whose storehouse of empirical evidence about the dangers of the virus easily outstrips that of the laptoppers, when they refuse to buckle to the demand to be scared, well, they're met with all kinds of opprobrium. Let's try that again. Opprobrium. Now, viewed in historical terms, he says, this is an odd phenomenon. For most of recorded time, prosperity and education have been the gateway to a life of relative freedom from worry. But now, Thomas Harrington says, the people who most enjoy these benefits are, it seems, racked with anxiety and in not the in the, in the not infrequent way of many people suffering that plague, they are hell-bent on sharing their misery with others. Now, he says, the point here is, is <clears throat> not to belittle the very real costs of anxiety in the lives of many people, nor to dismiss it as a real public health concern. He says, rather... It's to ask how and why it is proliferating so rapidly among those who, at least on the surface, have less reason than the vast majority of their fellow human beings to suffer from it. I think that's a fair question. And he says there are a number of possible explanations. Thomas Harrington says one way of explaining the phenomenon is in the context of income inequality and its devastating effects on the shape and size of the upper middle class and those who still believe they have a realistic chance of joining its ranks. Those who have made it into that subgroup are deeply cognizant of the unstable nature of their status in a world of corporate buyouts and rampant layoffs. And they worry that they may not be able to provide their children with the ability to retain what they see, rightly or wrongly, as the only real version of the good life. So when people way up on top made the decision following September 11th to make the inducement of fear the cornerstone of political mobilization in an increasingly post-political and post-communal society, well, they found a ready reserve of support in this anxious, if also relatively prosperous, cohort of the population. And he says, after two decades of having their already anxious inner selves massaged daily by a steady drumbeat of fear and a diet of Trump for Trump as Hitler for dessert, both they and their children fell like ripe fruit into the hands of those that wanted to sell them on the unprecedented threat posed by a disease that leaves 99.75% of its victims wonderfully alive. Now, adding another layer to this general phenomenon is the increasing isolation of our educated classes from physicality in both their work and communal lives. Think about it. Till the 1990s, it was virtually impossible for anyone other than the richest of the rich not to have any active or passive acquaintance with the world of physical work. Indeed, for the first three or four decades after World War II, many of those who could afford financially to relieve their children of this acquaintance with physical work often did not do so because they believed that knowing what it meant to sweat, ache, to be crushingly bored and not infrequently humiliated during the course of the day was essential to gaining a more rounded and emphatic understanding of the human condition. And all that ended when the financialization of the economy and the rise of the Internet made what Christopher Lash presciently termed uh, the rebellion of the elites a much more palpable possibility. Thomas Harrington says, for example, very few of my students have ever worked during their summers in anything other than office jobs, often procured through family connections. So they have very little understanding and hence little empathy of just how brutal and demeaning daily work can be for so many people. 
He says this alienation from the physical can also be seen in family life. The predominant and seldom challenged edict of go where the money is is a virtual religion for those seeking upward advancement in U.S. culture. And it's also meant large numbers of children now grow up far away from their extended families. However, we seldom talk about the built-in costs of subscribing to this ethos. Thomas Harrington says to talk with and listen to grandparents, uncles, and aunts on a regular basis and in person is very different from seeing these people in occasional choreographed holiday rituals or from time to time on Zoom. In the first instance, the child is inserted into a milieu that, for better or worse, structures his understanding of how the world works and forces him to to recognize his relationship to both the past, other people, and their individual stories. Now, might they decide later for very good reasons to break for this particular network of of narratives? Of course. But when they do so, they will at least carry with them the idea of a stable and rooted identity as a life goal. He says the increasing distance between those working within the antiseptic confines of the information economy and those still earning their keep with their bodies has led many of the former group into a state of enormous confusion regarding the distinction between words and deeds. He says that's why so many of them, parroting the moralizing, if factually tenuous talking points supplied to them by a deeply corrupt media establishment, are so nonplussed about the physical assaults upon people's bodies now taking place in the name of fighting COVID. And it's also why a disturbing number of those whom they teach truly believe that hearing someone utter a critique against an ideological construct that another person told them was good and correct is much more problematic than forcing someone to be injected with an experimental drug under the guise or under the threat of losing their livelihood. Pretty interesting stuff. Worse yet, he says these self-frightened elites think they can remedy their lack of credibility with those living outside of their grim prison of angst simply by pumping up the volume on the scare machine. But he says, I suspect they may be in for a bigger and much more physical set of responses than they ever imagined could come their way. There's more to this article. I would encourage you, click on it, read it for yourself. I've got it in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. And uh, this, is, this is one of many, many resources for wrong thinkers like you and me that I happily supply each day that I do this program. Check it out for yourself. We'll be back in <clears throat> we'll be back in just a few moments after I have a quick sip of tea. This is the Brian Hyde show. You spend a third of your life in bed. That's why we make the most comfortable sheets in the very best way. I'm Scott Tannen. Eight years ago, my wife Missy and I founded Bowl and Branch to create the new standard in bedding. We source pure organic cotton and put workers' rights first. Today, Bowl and Branch makes the highest quality sheets in the entire industry. You'll feel the difference of our famous signature sheets. They're made from pure organic cotton and get softer with every single wash. Now's the perfect time to try Bowl and Branch sheets, pillows, bath towels, and so much more. Each is made with super soft organic cotton by workers who are paid fairly and have come to feel like family. It's time to make the better choice and get the new standard in bedding. Visit BowlandBranch.com today for free shipping and returns. Experience a new standard of comfort at BowlandBranch.com and take 15% off your first set of sheets with promo code GOLD. That's B-O-L-L and Branch.com. Promo code GOLD. 
Tell me why Relief Factor is so successful in lowering or eliminating pain. I'm often asked that question. Pete and Seth Talbot, the father and son founders of Relief Factor, tell me they believe our bodies were designed to heal. The doctors who formulated Relief Factor selected the four best ingredients, 100% drug-free ingredients that each help your body deal with inflammation. Order the three-week quick start now. Discount it to only $19.95 to see if it will work for you too. Call 800-500-8384. ReliefFactor.com. Angie's list is now Angie, and getting your to-do list done just got easier. Between back to school and with the holidays around the corner, it can feel like there's no time to tackle home projects. Whether you need help with emergency repairs or major upgrades, Angie matches you with top local pros who can get the job done right. Browse reviews, see upfront pricing, and instantly book hundreds of projects. Save time for what matters most. Book your next project at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com following is not an actor, but a real life story from Trinity Debt Management. I had a lot of credit card debt and I couldn't pay my bills. I was feeling so bad. I got to a point where I needed some help. So I reached out and contacted Trinity. If you're in debt and you need help, call Trinity at 1-800-990-6976 to talk to a certified counselor. They were able to take all of my different payments and put them all together. Trinity will consolidate your accounts into one one easy-to-manage monthly payment. Put a stop to late fees and over-limit charges. Reduce your interest and possibly improve your credit score. You'll save thousands. And they were actually able to work with my creditors. I've been able to pay off close to $15,000 in the last 18 months. If your debt has you down, call Trinity at 1-800-990-6976. My name is Stephanie, and I'm debt-free for keeps. 1-800-990-6976. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I want to bring a guest on board, and I'm going to just throw this disclaimer out there. This segment is not intended to be an infomercial, but we're going to talk to Kendall Whiting. Kendall is uh, one of my sponsors through LifesavingFood.com. And uh, Kendall, thank you, first of all, for for joining me on the show. Yeah, I appreciate it. Uh, Thank you for inviting me on, Brian. I'm glad to have you here. I wish that we had something really lighthearted and fun to talk about, but I, I want to give my audience just an idea of, of what uh, you are seeing as as a person who retails, you know, emergency preparedness foods, who, who um, you know, you, you're pretty tapped into some of the supply chain issues that we're starting to see now. We've been talking for quite some time about how, you know, it's good to be self-reliant, it's good to have a food storage program, and now we're actually starting to see some some breakdowns in the supply chain affecting the food storage industry. Talk to me about the, the letter that you received earlier this week from ReadyWise Foods. Yeah, so on Monday I recently got a letter saying basically that the prices will be increasing. Um, these will only apply to the meat buckets, though, that I sell. But I could actually quote... Let's see, I have the letter in front of me also. Um, It says, quote, over the last quarter, we have experienced significant increases in commodity pricing, freight, and labor costs. We are unable to continue absorbing the increasing costs impacting our industry. And this is from the CFO from my supplier. Okay. Now, 
I know when prices go up, sometimes people are tempted to think, well, that's just, you know, businesses or manufacturers being greedy. But uh, I appreciate you coming on my program to talk a little bit about this letter that you received uh, from the CFO of Ready Wise Food saying, look, we've, we've tried to absorb these costs as long as we can, but there comes a point where you, you can't keep absorbing those costs and stay in business. You have to, you have to raise your prices in, in accordance with how your costs are going up. Exactly. Yeah. So I, it's people, um, what was I going to say that you're exactly right in saying that some people think it's the greediness of these businesses and corporations, whereas, you know, it, they make it pretty clear in this letter that they've done all they can to minimize the, the cost through productivity improvement through automation Third sourcing, um, it, it's pretty clear that, you know, the prices have been going up because of the supply and demand. Right. And, and I think, I hope by now people are starting to get the picture and not, you know, oh, we're all doomed. But just look, if you're going grocery shopping, you're seeing it. Not only are the prices going up, but there, there are certain things that are in fairly high demand that are pretty tough to come by. And so you're seeing lots, lots of gaps on the shelf. It, it doesn't take, you know, too much of an imagination to understand why that could extend to other areas of the food supply chain, including, you know, those emergency provisions and preparedness provisions that people may be wanting to, to put up. Are, are you hearing any other rumbles from anywhere else, you know, throughout the, the um, food storage industry? Um, I know, I mean, just in general, like when I go to the grocery store anywhere else, like you've been talking about in your previous episodes, there's been a lot of empty shelves, um, the meat and all the stores have been going up in price and just Big in time. general, the restaurants. And so that's why I think the meat buckets have gone up just because overall they've gone up in, in throughout the industries and. I, I did a little bit of calculating actually, and I calculated as around twenty percent increase on the meat bucket. Yeah, that's uh, that's one that I think most of us feel. I, you know, I look back with fondness on the days when you know I could go shopping for steaks, and there were, you could usually find a decent steak for you know between five and ten dollars, and and uh, you know that sometimes you shop the discount meat bin. I wasn't too proud to do so, but holy cow. I swear, when it, yeah. when it comes to shopping for meat now, and we're not talking steak, I'm talking things like chicken or even pork. There is, yeah. there's a very noticeable increase in price. Ribs used to be a great favorite. Now I'm like, well, maybe only on special occasions. <laughs> they're really yeah, spendy. It, it's, all, it's so true. You almost have to like save up to eat some meat now. Like you have to like treat it as if it's something like you can only eat like once a week, not something you can just purchase every day and eat every day anymore you have to really plan ahead and budget for it well i'm i appreciate you sharing some some insights on this with us you know it's it's not to tell people hey you know don't uh, don't even bother now it's all gone or it's all too expensive there is still plentiful supply out there but the reality is yeah. prices are going up because the the cost of doing business is going up they mentioned you know for instance transportation and, and, you know, what cost of gas goes up, guess what? So does the price of everything, literally everything else. Yes, yes. And there's a big backup right now, too. Um, for instance, the vegetable buckets I sell, 
they're not going to be back in stock until early November. So I had to put a halt to that. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if I saw other categories where things are slowing down and there's a huge demand and the supply is going down because things can't come into our country as fast. Yeah, it, it, I know that the rumblings are it's going to be a very interesting Christmas. So, so here's, yeah. here's my uh, suggestion. If you're going to give Christmas gifts, give the kind of Christmas gifts that will actually improve someone's standing. And I'm talking things like water filters. I'm talking things like, you know, food storage, those grab-and-go buckets. or uh, You know, people may turn their nose up at one point. They'd be like, why would you give us food storage? I think this is one of those times where people would be like, oh, thank you. I could actually see this being yeah. useful, you know, down the road. Yeah. Our, our family, we usually do like a white elephant gift themed thing or game, I guess. And I'm thinking of just doing like a food storage bucket or something. Wow. Maybe that'll be the desired gift or something. That's good. I was going to say it's going to be the most sought after gift that there is. <laughs> well, so. I, I appreciate you keeping us, you know, up to speed on this again. I, I feel like I walk this tightrope every every single time I talk about these kind of things. In that I really don't want people to be afraid. I don't want them to be panicky and like, get me the credit card, honey. What do we got to do this now? Yeah. Um, this is something you need yeah. to be thinking about. But uh, it's also it's an unpleasant truth that we really need to face. And you know, when when you start to see truly empty store shelves, and when it's clear things will not be coming back in to replace what's gone from those shelves, I I just can't think of a better time to have some peace of mind in knowing that you took the time to prepare. You took the time to set aside something for a time when it wouldn't be easy to get those things. And, you know, we're probably also going to have to adjust some, but I just, I think, I think there's more peace of mind in this than that, that horrible look that was in people's eyes, you know, in mid March of 2020, when it was clear, they're going to lock everything down. And boy, if you don't have what you need, you're, you know, you may be scrambling, you may be fist fighting somebody, you know, over toilet paper. I hope it doesn't come to that, but yeah. Yeah, I don't either. I I mean, I I think people just um, what we can do, I guess, is just set aside a budget, just uh, monthly or weekly or however you want to do it, and just start chipping away at it. You don't need to buy, you know, the full year supply all in one um, purchase or anything, but you can just purchase a little bit at a time. Just just like anything else in life, consistency will get you really great results. And and the yeah. one thing I've observed with food storage, it, it doesn't take long to start really adding up. You know, you may feel at first like, well, I don't know if I'm really getting anywhere. But a couple of months down the road, if you're being consistent, you'll start to notice, hey, that's that's a pretty nice stash. And I can't explain, but it makes me feel good when I look at it. Kendall Wyden, <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to, to be on yeah. the show today. I, I'm glad you invited me to. Like, I, I was like, um, oh, yeah, Brian Hyde. Like, you, I, I don't know. I was super excited to come on. And I, I just want to say, too, I'm grateful for all you've done and furthering the cause of freedom and liberty. You are very kind. And, and folks, again, in, in full disclosure, Kendall is one of my sponsors here on the show, but... Um, he's the kind of sponsor I really would want you to be acquainted with because he's, he's dialed into some things that are really important. We will take a break. We'll be back just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome back to the show. It is so good to have you as part of my audience. And I would ask this favor, if you find something of value in the show, please tell a friend about it. Drop them a note. Uh, let them know that they can. you can subscribe and actually receive my show notes. Every time I hit publish, it'll send it right to your email. This is for those of you. I know that not everybody has time to listen to the full two hours of the show. Not everybody wants to listen to me, and I'm okay with that. That's absolutely fine. But I do put together these show notes with the idea that if you're looking for good information, wanting a better understanding of the world around us, this is a good place to start. Not because I have all the answers, but I'm constantly on the prowl for good, solid, principled information. Boy, did I find a great one, too, in uh, Vasco Kohlmeyer's latest essay. You know, of all the battles being fought around us, the one in which every single one of us has a stake is the war that's being waged against reality. This is the great struggle of our time, the battle for reality. Listen to what Vasco Kohlmeyer has to say. He says, with societal turbulence all around us, many people feel that we're locked in some great and portentous struggle. But because it's so pervasive and multifaced, the nature of this struggle isn't always readily obvious. Now, there are many fronts on which this struggle is being fought. You'll see it in racial relations, education, health care, popular culture, the financial system, even freedom of speech, among others. And Vasco Kohlmeyer says, it's not easy to make sense of it all, especially since the battles are highly pitched and emotions are running very high. What characterizes these battles, beside their, besides their deep intensity, is their deep polarization. The possibility of the warring camps coming together and meeting on some common ground seems to be growing more distant by the day. In fact, there's even talk that the two sides will come to blows or they will go their own way in some form of secession. Now, many have observed that the contenders seem to be separated by an unbridgeable gap, and yet no one has been able to explain the nature of this gap or what exactly it is that separates the mindsets of the opposing sides. So Vasco Kohlmeyer says, in our view, the struggle in the grip of which we find ourselves cuts much deeper than the immediate issues that we're arguing over. The real fight extends beyond any particular point of public friction. In fact, he says, the great battle of our time is a battle about the very nature of reality. More precisely, what the two sides war over on the most fundamental level is what constitutes truth and how it should be determined. Now, to shed light on this dynamic... He says, let's take one of the most heated controversies of the present time. For this, we choose transgenderism. Now, this is an especially suitable example for two reasons. This issue is highly divisive and polarizing, and it delineates the opposing camps sharply and clearly. As you may know, transgender advocates claim that biological males can become women and vice versa. Now, understandably, many people find this claim rather far-fetched. For one thing, it doesn't feel true given that the evidence of our senses seems to refute it. For example, people look at transgender women, in other words, biological men who say they are women, most people immediately recognize that's not a real female. What most people see is men who pretend to be girls. That's how the human mind, in the vast majority of instances, interprets sensory input that it receives upon encountering such persons. And yet transgender advocates vehemently maintain that's not the correct interpretation of the visual data. They insist that what's in front of our eyes are not men who pose as girls, but real girls. 
and the claims of transgender advocates thus run in direct contravention to what we perceive to be the case with our own eyes. In other words, transgender supporters attempt to negate and override our perception of reality. In essence, what they're telling us is reject the appearance of your eyes, or the evidence of your eyes, rather. What is in front of you is not a man who tries to appear as a woman, but a genuine woman. And they often insist on this point with great vehemence, so vehemently, in fact, that they want to punish and penalize those who dare to say otherwise. They call such people transphobes, among other things, and have them canceled and fired from their jobs. They also charge them with the offense of misgendering, which has now become a crime in some places. To put it another way, it's now becoming a crime to honestly declare reality as it is presented to us by our sensory apparatus. And it raises the question, too. I mean, look, you want to treat people well. I think that's that's noble. But to what degree are you obligated to participate in their perception? I was going to say their fantasy, but I'm trying to be diplomatic. Now, in, in Vasco uh, asks the question here, can it be possible that our senses may deceive us in some way? After all, sometimes our senses do paint an inaccurate picture of the world. For example, when we put a stick in water, the stick appears to be bent at the point where it touches the water's surface. Well, the good news is we don't have to rely on sight alone when trying to make uh, the determination of whether someone is a man or a woman. In this modern era, we're fortunate to possess precise and reliable scientific means for making this determination. As you may know, males and females are born with different chromosomal structures. Chromosomes are made of strands of DNA that are stored in the nuclei of our cells. Both sexes have 23 distinct pairs of chromosomes, of which 22 are the same, but the last one differs markedly. In men, the 23rd chromosomal pair takes the form XY, while in women, its form is XX. So our sex is thus a biological reality that's encoded in the deepest physical level of our being. Nearly every one of some 30 trillion cells in our body bears witness to whether we're male or female. Now, this fact is incontrovertible. It cannot be altered. As matters stand now, mankind does not possess technology or scientific means to change this fact, and it's unlikely it ever will. From the moment of our conception, our sex is irrevocably hardwired deep in the very physical substratum of our existence. And yet, transgender advocates claim that those with XY chromosomes, in other words, biological men, can suddenly and at whim become women. And those with XX chromosomes, biological females, can become men. Now, transgender activists go so far as to profess that this impossible traversing of the man-woman dichotomy can be affected by mere wishful thinking via arbitrary self-identification with the opposite sex. Thus, in addition to denying the evidence of the senses, transgender advocates also deny biological and physical aspects of reality as presented by science. And because of this, the transgender movement represents a brazen and complete negation of reality in all of its aspects and dimensions, sensory, commonsensical, historical, biological, physical, and scientific. To fully understand the context of our larger societal struggle, he says it's important that we realize that the transgender ideology is a wholesale denial of truth. It constitutes a complete inversion of reality on all levels. And because of its uncompromising negation of fact, Transgenderism represents gaslighting at its most extreme. 
Now, if this flagrant subversion of fact was confined only to the transgender movement, that by itself would be reason enough for serious concern. But Vasco says, here's something truly alarming. The kind of wholesale denial of reality that we're seeing is emblematic of the whole of the American political left as it stands in 2021. Whereas before such levels of absurdity were mostly the domain of the left's fringes, today they permeate the whole of it. And this, of course, includes the mainstream of the Democrat Party. Now, if you think this is an exaggeration, he says, contemplate this. On the very day of his inauguration, Joe Biden signed an executive order number 13988 called Executive Order on Preventing and Combating Discrimination on the Basis of Gender Identity or Sexual Orientation. Now, Biden's directive seeks, among other things, to force schools to allow boys who declare themselves girls to compete in sports with genuine biological girls. And it's revealing. It's as revealing as it is significant that Joe Biden did this on his very first day in office as president of the United States. As soon as he assumed power, the standard bearer of the Democratic Party tried to impose by executive fiat a brazen negation of reality upon this nation. And more alarmingly still, Joe Biden is still widely considered to belong to the moderate wing of of his party. So the question arises, well, if this is what moderates do, what are the designs and goals of the party's more radical elements? The fact that Biden issued the edict on his first day shows that transgenderism is not some peripheral cause held by leftist radicals. And this issue is central to the Democrat mainstream. Now, this shows the willful and and uh, deep moral corruption of the party in its current incarnation. I mean, we're talking willful denial of truth is uh, the, the most severe of transgressions. And this is apparently the primary offense of the one whom the good book calls the father of lies. And apparently the Democrat establishment is following well in his path. We're going to come back to this article in just a few moments. Again, this is from Vasco Kohlmeyer, and it's uh, it's a doozy. I agree, though, and you've, you've, <clears throat> you've heard me refer to, you have heard me refer to the, the problem of being separated from reality. That's the toughest thing right now is maintaining your grip on it while everybody and everything, the different institutions and people are telling you, no, 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 that's not true. We'll come back to this in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. First, we decide where we want to go. Then we need to know the best way to get there. Hi, my name's Adam Barada. I'm the owner of Advantage Gold. We're the highest rated precious metals firm in the country. We teach people how to own physical gold and silver. Now, we've won the Best of TrustLink Award four years in a row because we educate our clients on how to buy gold and silver the right way. We don't pay celebrity spokespeople millions of dollars. We'd rather pass that value on to you. Call 800-900-8000 and speak with one of our experts. We'll send you a free gold kit along with my latest number one national best-selling book, The Great Devaluation. Call 800-900-8000. That's 800-900-8000. Get the best information, the best process, the best service, the best value. Call Advantage Gold at 800-900-8000. Call 800-900-8000. 
I'm Dinesh D'Souza. If you are a homeowner, you need to consider a mortgage refinance while rates are still low. I mean it. You could miss out on hundreds of dollars in monthly savings. Don't let that happen. Call American Financing, America's home for home loans, and take advantage of a free mortgage review. There's no pressure, no upfront or hidden fees. They're not like that. This is a company that's in it for you, doing whatever it takes to save you up to $1,000 a month. Without resetting your loan. Because at American Financing, they can write any term 10 years and over. So don't put a refinance off any longer. Pre qualify for free by calling 888 528 1219. That's 888 528 1219. Or visit AmericanFinancing.net. American Financing, NMLS 182334, NMLS Hi, I'm Wayne Alaroot for Patriot VPN. Patriot VPN is a virtual private network service that uses military-grade encryption to protect your Internet connection on all of your devices. With Patriot VPN, your data and Internet privacy is secure anywhere in the world. Why do you need Patriot VPN? Cyber criminals, government, even your own Internet service provider collect and use your private information without your knowledge. Examples in the news recently, remember all the companies that have been hacked? Cuba censored the Internet to kill protests? Here in America, conservative groups are being actively targeted. Your personal information and internet history is being sold by your ISP. It's all happening every day, but not with Patriot VPN. With Patriot VPN, your internet activity and history is protected from prying eyes forever. Patriot VPN is a veteran-owned business right here in the USA. For business or your family, starting at only $6.95 a month, use code WAR and get three months free with an annual subscription. It's all at PatriotVPN.com. That's PatriotVPN.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Quick shout out to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. You can swing by their office at 619 South Bluff Street. You can call her on the phone at 435-703-4522. If you are looking for a home loan, whether it's a VA loan, a traditional loan, a reverse mortgage, maybe want to refinance your existing home loan, if you are within the state of Utah, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage is there to help you. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. She's got decades of experience. She can get the job done and, most importantly, get it done quickly. I've got a link on my uh, on my show notes at the, the BrianHydeShow.com. It's an email link that will take you directly to Heather. I want to take advantage of that if you are looking for a home loan. So back to this article by Vasco uh, Kohlmeyer about the great struggle of our time, the battle for reality. And I know for some people it may sound like, well, you sure just you know, got an axe to grind with the transgender people. And um, I, I don't say this to, to suggest that, boy, you should be rude and you should treat people poorly. Um, most of us, whether you want to admit it or not, know someone who is, is struggling with gender identity issues. And it's, it's not a light thing. I mean, the, the suicide rate is very, very high for people who are, are struggling with this issue. I'm not convinced that uh, indulging the fantasy and, and furthering it is necessarily doing them a favor. But I want to make absolutely clear, I'm not advocating, boy, we should be shouting them down and, you know, making them feel shamed. I, I don't think that's necessary. 
I do think, though, that you have to, to assert your prerogative and your sovereignty, if you will, to hold on to reality. Because right now, there is, there is a faction that is very much trying to convince you that you should turn loose of reality and, and cling to whatever they say is reality. Again, going back to, uh, to Mr. Kohlmeyer's uh, article here, he says the well-being of so-called transgender people is not what Joe Biden and his handlers really care about. After all, Joe Biden had never been known to be particularly friendly toward LGBT. It's the movement's proclivity towards reality negation that those who pull the strings of this frail man find so appealing. So they've appropriated the transgender cause because it allows them to gaslight the American people, and gaslighting has become the left's modus operandi. Oh, you don't believe me? Watch, watch the network news. It's, it's gaslighting in every sense of the word. And it's done with a straight face. You're expected. You should believe this. Gaslighting is now an integral part of the left's every move, and it's sowing confusion and wreaking havoc everywhere. The gaslighters have already managed to disorient many people and weaken their hold on reality. They correctly sense that if they press sufficiently hard, they will be able to take advantage of the disarray and implement their godless, nihilistic, inhuman, love-deprived, and freedom-hating agenda. Vasco Kohlmeyer says, should they succeed, we will find ourselves living in a dystopian nightmare ruled by totalitarians. That's why the great battle of our time is the battle for reality against those who aspire to negate it. This is what the current struggle is ultimately about. I, I just have to nod in agreement. Yeah, I think he's right. I think he's absolutely correct. All right, moving on. The term enemy of the state carries some pretty serious baggage, right? Nobody really wants to be de- de- designated as an enemy of the state. But as Jeff Minnick, writing for intellectualtakeout.org, writes, once you understand what the state is actually up to in regards to trying to separate you from your natural rights, being labeled an enemy of the state ought to be a badge of honor. Minnick says, all my life I've felt a bond with places and with people. Growing up in Boonville, North Carolina, population then about 600. He says, I went to elementary school in the Methodist church, knew many of the merchants in town. Donald, uh, rather Harvey Smith, grocer and mayor for many years, Donald the barber, Mr. Weatherwax, who owned the pharmacy, and was kind enough to let me read comic books on the premises, and a dozen more adults. And he says, and I relished my friends and family. Boonville's red clay and rolling hills were as much a part of me as any genetic code. And then there are the other places I've lived, New York, Connecticut, Boston, California, Charlottesville in Virginia, Waynesville and Asheville in North Carolina, and for the last five years, Front Royal in Virginia. That became home to me, one for only a year, one for 20 years, but always home. Now, Minnick says, this was the case because all around me was my country, a people and land joined together under a flag that aspiring physician in Charlottesville who brought flags to every classroom in his son's school and taught the kids the Pledge of Allegiance, the old-style liberal in North Carolina, a good friend who recognized the flaws of our country, but also its grandeur, my lovely wife putting out small American flags along the sidewalk of our bed and breakfast every Independence Day. These and a thousand other people and events have connected me to the goodness of this beautiful country in which I live. But he says those same affectionate emotions don't extend to the state, in particular the federal government, especially given their recent actions. 
There's a name for the situation where government servants become government masters. It's called tyranny. And in the last 250 years, our nation shifted from a republic with a central government of limited powers to an oligarchy of politicians, bureaucrats, corporations, and some in the mass media. A conglomeration that today seeks to rule every aspect of our lives. These are the people who constantly proclaim themselves as wise and benevolent rulers who only wish the best for their subjects. And they're failing on every front. Federal aid and regulations have damaged our, our elementary and secondary public schools. Federal aid to our universities has, bought, has brought rather inflated tuition and massive student debts. Federal regulation has proven catastrophic for our health care system. We lose the wars we fight not because of the courage of our soldiers, but because those in power often make ignorant decisions. Oh, and that same government has spent us into perpetual debt. Now, the list goes on, but Jeff Minnick says it's the Chinese virus that revealed both the tyranny and ineptitude of our government. The lockdowns were disasters for small businesses and schools. The unconstitutional mandates demanding all citizens receive an experimental vaccine are further damaging everything from our airlines industry to our hospitals as employees walk away or are fired for their refusal to take the jab. Meanwhile, while some places restrict access to restaurants, movie theaters, and other public venues to the vaccinated, our southern border has become a highway for refugees, none of whom are vetted for the vaccine. Defense from invasion, which should be the first job of government, has gone missing. And that's effectively where we are today. For nearly two years, prompted by a virus, the federal government and some of our state governors have bullied, threatened, harassed, and intimidated the American people. They've used fear and division as their cudgels to keep us cowed and beaten down. But he asks, are we finally seeing a rebellion against these tyrants? If we carefully sift through the information our censors still allow to appear online, Jeff Minnick says, I believe a revolt is already in the making in America. That nurse who decides to maintain sovereignty over her body and walks off her job is a model of heroism. That parent who confronts a school board for teaching critical race theory or for allowing boys into the girls' locker room is leading a charge against government. That university professor who won't buckle when falsely accused of racism is a splendid foot soldier in this rebellion. And the refusal of certain congressional Democrats to support an insane spending bill indicates at least some of them are in touch with their constituents. Now, Jeff Minnick says we Americans have been asleep for a long time now, failing to surveil our politicians and bloated bureaucracy. As our Declaration of Independence tells us, all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. In the very next sentence, however, this same document states that when the people suffer from a long train of abuses and usurpations, then it is their right, it is their duty, to throw off such government. A few years later, the founders then devised a a constitution with its separation of powers and bill of rights that reflects their fears of a tyrannical government. Now, Jeff Minnick says, like those ancestors, today's Republicans, Democrats, and liberals and conservatives would be wise to regard the state as an enemy, not a friend. I know that there's a time that would have sounded really, really radical, but given the things that are going on around us, does that strike you as, you know, quite as, uh, as out there? as it might have at one time. 
I like how George Washington put it. He equated government to being like fire, a dangerous servant and a fearful master. There's a reason why the powers were clearly enumerated in the Constitution to prevent people who uh, saw opportunity or who saw the opportunity for mischief, to be more precise, to keep them from engaging in said mischief. So if you are standing up for things like natural rights, like personal freedom, like freedom of conscience, private property rights, etc., you're standing on the right side of history. And if that makes you an enemy of the state... Wear it as a badge of honor, and I'll be standing right there beside you. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. Happy that you could be part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. Every day I get behind this microphone and I share with you the best information that I can find to help you better understand the world and to better understand how you can exert your influence in a way that has real and lasting impact. And I am speaking to the, the, the potential hero out there, the one that you probably would deny is within you, but someone out there needs to hear this information. And, and if it's not you, that's fine. I won't waste your time. You know, the door's right there and you're free to go. Don't, uh, you don't even have to ask permission to leave. Just, you know, you can show yourself out. But I understand there are people who are also very seriously looking for a reality-based take on what is going on around us. My goal is to do that, to bring you, you know, the best information I can find to do it without bringing either more fear or more anger into an already volatile situation. But above all, it's to leave you free to decide what to do with that information. Just so we're clear, there's no requirement that you have to believe what I say. I'm saying it, so you have to believe it. No, that's not the case. It's your mind. There is a very real battle for your allegiance. But ultimately, I want you to make up your own mind, even if that means you think I'm as full of it as a Christmas goose. Our program is brought to you by MonticelloCollege.org, also by LifesavingFood.com, and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Well, let's start with uh, the infrastructure bill. I'm putting that in quotation marks that uh, Congress has been working to pass. I guess uh, October 31st is is the deadline that they're shooting for. But uh, there's a lot of questionable stuff in there. And I mean, I'm, I'm speaking as broadly as possible. There's a lot of pork for, you know, friends and cronies of those who are in power. But there are a couple of passages that are really questionable. Nicholas Anthony asks, for instance, why is the infrastructure bill deciding the fate of crypto? This is an article published on the Foundation for Economic Education uh, website, uh, fee.org, another excellent resource for wrong thinkers. Here's what Nicholas Anthony has to say. He says, the bipartisan infrastructure bill has a new deadline of October 31st, but an important question still looms. Why is a must-pass bill ostensibly focused on America's infrastructure, deciding the fates of uh, cryptocurrencies. 
What does that have to do with infrastructure, right? He says, if you scroll through the infrastructure bill to page 2,419, this should indicate some of the depth of the problem here, 2,419 pages in, you'll find section 80, 80, let's try that again, 80603, where two curious provisions managed to turn the cryptocurrency industry upside down. Now, the first amends the Internal Revenue Code to redefine the term broker. So it includes any person who's responsible for regularly providing any service effectuating transfers of digital assets on behalf of another person. In short, this requires not just exchanges like Coinbase or Robinhood to report personal information to the government, but also miners, as in uh, mining, and developers, because people mine for cryptocurrency. Hopefully this is something that you understand and you probably do better than I do. So Nicholas Anthony says, while such an overstep is grounds for objection in and of itself, it's made worse by the fact that it's requiring an impossible standard of reporting. So these, uh, for instance, uh, Bitcoin miners may effectuate transfers But that's not because someone personally contracted them to do so. What they're doing is simply their part to validate the blockchain, and the blockchain itself is publicly available. Now, the government's able, just like anyone else, to see the limited information that miners have. At best, he says this requirement represents a fundamental misunderstanding of the cryptocurrency industry in Congress. At worst, it sets a de facto ban on mining and other routine activities in the industry. Yeah, I think it's, it's to, to me, it looks like this is the camel's nose coming under the tent. We just got to get it in there somewhere. Then we can work to expand our way in. Now, scroll through another couple pages. You'll see where matters get worse. The bill also seeks to include digital assets, meaning cryptocurrencies, NFTs, and the like, in Section 60501D of the IRC, the Internal Revenue Code. Now, at first glance, that may not sound very intimidating. However, if we turn to the Internal Revenue Code itself, the magnitude of this amendment becomes clear because the section in question requires any business transaction of $10,000 or more in cash to be reported to the government along with the name, address, and social security number of the payer. Failure to do so within 15 days can result in fines and even felony charges. Without even a notice to the public, the infrastructure bill would require the same reporting on digital assets. Now, unfortunately, Congress has justified the decision to quietly insert this section into the bill because the Joint Committee on Taxation identified the cryptocurrency industry as a source of tax revenue. Of course they did. Something good happened in your life? Well, we just want our cut. That's all we're looking for. The committee estimated that the new reporting requirements could yield $28 billion over the course of a decade. Now, the $28 billion created a challenge when the Senate tried to, when senators tried to amend the bill to remove the section on cryptocurrencies. If that section was removed, they would then have needed to scramble to find a new source of $28 billion. However, it's not clear that that money even exists in the first place. Unlike miners on the blockchain, the committee has yet to show their work. They published a table that outlines the expected revenue over the next 10 years, but there is no justification for the numbers. There's no indication of what might happen to the tax revenue if the cryptocurrency industry leaves the United States. 
There's no range of possible outcomes under varying circumstances. There's no note explaining whether or not this number is built off the assumption that the industry as a whole is able to comply. The number is simply by decree or fiat. But that was enough for Congress to include the section and the White House to celebrate it as a leading step in strengthening tax enforcement to offset the infrastructure bill. Yeah, can you believe they would be celebrating increasing your strengthening tax enforcement? This, I guess it was, this would explain that to interest in, well, we just want to know if there's any transactions over $600 taking place. We want your bank to report that. Meanwhile, they're throwing trillions of dollars around with abandon, and they just, they got to know what's going on in your life. Otherwise, you may not pay your fair share. You know, I don't advocate being a tax cheat, but I do think it's absolutely patriotic that you should not pay a single dime more than you absolutely have to. I think the government should squeal like a stuck pig when it's not getting its tax revenue. I think it should get used to living on less, but hey, that's that's just my opinion. You're welcome to it. Now, the infrastructure bill is expected to pass before the end of October. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the case is closed. Congress should not be able to decide the fate of the entire crypto industry through a last-minute provision slipped into a must-pass bill. As Senator Cynthia Loomis of Wyoming put it, this is why we need a real committee process to consider these issues instead of secret drafting. And there's some additional reading that uh, that uh, Nicholas Anthony includes in here, about uh, five different articles about cryptocurrency and you know how how people are claiming that uh, cryptos pose a systemic risk to the th- to the economy. For the record, I'm not involved in you know buying and selling or you know in in getting cryptocurrency. I I'm not selling you. I think it's a bad idea. I think that uh, for some people, it's a great thing. Friends who bought Bitcoin a, a while back, they're sitting quite well right now, even though Bitcoin is kind of volatile. What attracts me to crypto and what makes me think ah, there may be something to this is the decentralized nature of that blockchain technology. And it, 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 keep, it keeps things out of reach of government. I'll try to give you the, the, the layman's expression, which is dumbed down to where even I can understand it. Right now, banks are pretty much the middleman. But federal control over banks is pretty strong. If the IRS wants to make you sad and hungry, they can shut down your bank account. They can freeze it. They can seize your assets very, very easily because the federal government controls so much of the banking system. If they want to shut down banks you know, and declare a bank holiday like FDR did, they can absolutely do that. So let's not uh, let's not make the mistake of of treating this lightly. It's something that could keep government off your back because of the decentralized nature of blockchain technology. Well, no wonder they want to get their greasy mitts on it and uh, you know throttle it into submission. By the way, we're going to talk about blockchain on the other side of the break as well and how it prevents modern book burning. This is The Brian Hyde Show. First, we decide where we want to go. 
Then we need to know the best way to get there. Hi, my name's Adam Barada. I'm the owner of Advantage Gold. We're the highest rated precious metals firm in the country. We teach people how to own physical gold and silver. Now, we've won the Best of TrustLink Award four years in a row because we educate our clients on how to buy gold and silver the right way. We don't pay celebrity spokespeople millions of dollars. We'd rather pass that value on to you. Call 800-900-8000 and speak with one of our experts. We'll send you a free gold kit along with my latest number one national best-selling book, The Great Devaluation. Call 800-900-8000. That's 800-900-8000. Get the best information, the best process, the best service, the best value. Call Advantage Gold at 800-900-8000. Call 800-900-8000. I'm Dinesh D'Souza. If you are a homeowner, you need to consider a mortgage refinance while rates are still low. I mean it. You could miss out on hundreds of dollars in monthly savings. Don't let that happen. Call American Financing, America's home for home loans, and take advantage of a free mortgage review. There's no pressure, no upfront or hidden fees. They're not like that. This is a company that's in it for you, doing whatever it takes to save you up to $1,000 a month. Without resetting your loan. Because at American Financing, they can write any term, 10 years and over. So don't put a refinance off any longer. Pre-qualify for free by calling 888-528-1219. That's 888-528-1219. Or visit AmericanFinancing.net. American Financing, NMLS 182334, NMLSConsumerAccess.org. Hi, I'm Wayne Alaroot for Patriot VPN. Patriot VPN is a virtual private network service that uses military-grade encryption to protect your Internet connection on all of your devices. With Patriot VPN, your data and Internet privacy is secure anywhere in the world. Why do you need Patriot VPN? Cyber criminals, government, even your own Internet service provider collect and use your private information without your knowledge. Examples in the news recently, remember all the companies that have been hacked? Cuba censored the Internet to kill protests. Here in America, conservative groups are being actively targeted. Your personal information and Internet history is being sold by your ISP. It's all happening every day, but not with Patriot VPN. With Patriot VPN, your Internet activity and history is protected from prying eyes forever. Patriot VPN is a veteran-owned business right here in the USA. For business or your family, starting at only $6.95 a month, use code WAR and get three months free. With an annual subscription, it's all at PatriotVPN.com. That's PatriotVPN.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. want to mention uh, one of my sponsors here. That would be lifesavingfood.com. I've been talking for some time about how it's, you know, the time to prepare is when people are not feeling panicky. Before the store shelves start to get empty. Before people realize that there's a problem. Well, guess what? People are starting to realize there's a problem. And the supply chain disruptions that we're starting to see are beginning to impact even the preparedness industry, particularly those who are suppliers of dehydrated and freeze-dried foods. And this, unfortunately, is extending even to uh, my sponsor. I just uh, talked with uh, Kendall Kendall, uh, Whiting just the other day about uh, a letter he received from his distributor, which is uh, ReadyWise Foods, 
that uh, prices are going to be going up. In fact, they already have gone up significantly on uh, the meat buckets that they do, which are it's still a remarkable value. But, man, supply and demand. I guess what I'm getting at here is the, the time to prepare always is, you know, five years ago. When there was no panic and there was plenty of supply and prices were relatively low. The second best time to prepare is right this moment. The worst time to prepare is, well, when I get around to it a few months from now or when I feel like there's really a problem, that's when I'm going to prepare. If you put it off for that long, you will probably have a long face as you realize I can't get the things that I'm looking for. So there's a link included in the show notes at thebryanhideshow.com. Don't do this out of fear. Don't do this out of a sense of if I don't get it, somebody else will. But just know, there are likely to be some disruptions in the days ahead. If there's something that you need that uh, you don't have, you know, that you think you're going to need in the next year, it's probably a good time to get it. Click on the link for lifesavingfood.com. Use the coupon code HIDE, H-Y-D-E, at checkout. You'll get a nice discount. That's only for my listeners. All right, having said that, let's move on. So we're talking about blockchain technology in the first segment here. I want to share some thoughts about how blockchain prevented digital book burning. This is a marvelous article from Chris Campbell. This was from the Foundation for Economic Education. Interestingly enough, this one was published about four years ago. How the blockchain prevented digital book burning. And Chris Campbell says, In 1952, a 32-year-old man called the Los Angeles Fire Department and asked them, At what temperature paper burned? Strange question, yes, but the man had just written a book on a rental typewriter in a basement at the nearby university's library. Now he needed to give it a name. Fortunately, the fireman on the other end of the line humored him. Fahrenheit 451, he said. The man hung up the phone. He had his title. And the rest, as they say, is history. Now, Ray Bradbury's book, Fahrenheit 451, of course, is a classic. Even the introduction written by Neil Gaiman is brilliant. In it, Gaiman talks about the power of cautionary questions. There are three three phases, says Gaiman, which make it possible for speculative fiction, also known as science fiction writers, to write about the world of not yet. Those three phrases are, what if, or if only, and if this goes on. Posed as questions, those three questions help speculators to frame possible timelines for the future, wild as they may be, and to see what may come of them if the train remains on the track. Now, Gaiman elaborates on the three phrases. What if gives us change, a departure from our lives? What if aliens landed tomorrow and gave us everything we wanted but at a price? If only allows us to explore the glories and dangers of tomorrow. If only dogs could talk. If only I was invisible. And if this goes on, is the most predictive of the three, although it doesn't try to predict an actual future with all its messy confusion. Instead, if this goes on, fiction takes an element of life today, something clear and obvious and normally something troubling, and asks, what would happen if that thing, that one thing, became bigger, became all-pervasive, changed the way we thought and behaved? If this goes on... All communication everywhere will be through text messages or computers and direct speech between two people without a machine will be outlawed. Interesting. Now, it's a cautionary question, but it lets us explore cautionary worlds. 
Thus, Fahrenheit 451, says Guyman, is a book of warning. It is a reminder that what we have is valuable and that sometimes we take what we value for granted. Indeed. Which is why, in light of a recent story, we read about Berkeley's run-in with a cohort of digital book burners. We thought we'd summon up those three phrases for our own purposes. So here's the question. What if the state had the power to burn books at will? Now, our story today is nonfiction. And it begins where, the most, uh, where most horror stories of the nonfiction variety begin, in Washington, D.C., About a year or two ago, remember he's writing this in 2017, two employees of D.C.'s Gallaudet University, a school for the deaf, were outraged to discover some of UC Berkeley's 20,000 free world-class lectures could not be accessed by those with hearing impairments. Unfortunate indeed. But rather than contacting Berkeley to see if they could solve this problem amicably, the complainants turned directly to the Department of Justice for help. A bit hasty, we think. After investigating the claims made by the two Gallaudet employees, says Brittany Hunter on fee.org, the DOJ came to the conclusion that, yes, Berkeley's free online archive had, in fact, violated the ADA, particularly Title II, which mandates that all public audio and video content provide accommodations for the deaf and hard of hearing. Now, among these stipulations is the requirement that all applicable content offer closed captioning, Regrettably, uh, 543 of Berkeley's videos were missing that closed captioning. So the DOJ then sent a letter to Berkeley essentially stating these videos need to be reformatted to meet the criteria, else they would have to delete the archive completely. Oh my word, can you see where this is going? But the problem is, Berkeley found the requirements of the ADA would make for an extremely time-consuming and expensive endeavor. One they couldn't reasonably justify undergoing. Last September, Kathy Koshland, Vice Chancellor for Undergraduate Education at the university, said this, quote, In many cases, the requirements proposed by the department would require the university to implement extremely expensive measures to continue to make these resources available to the public for free. We believe that in a time of substantial budget deficits and shrinking state financial support, Our first obligation is to use our limited resources to support our enrolled students. Therefore, we must strongly consider the unenviable option of whether to remove content from public access. End quote. Now, in early March 2017, Berkeley officials made their final decision. They would, regrettably, begin removing all 20,000 of the files on March 15th. And that's exactly what they've been doing and we're going to be doing for about the next five months. Now, says Brittany Hunter, instead of one group of people having limited access to a very small portion of Berkeley's extensive online library, the whole world will lose access to the entire archive. Now, don't you worry, all is not lost. More on that in a moment. As Chris, uh, Chris Campbell explains here, if only we chose to create rather than destroy. He says the, the result of this story was entirely predictable. Government doesn't create wealth. In fact, it's the best wrecking ball on earth for destroying wealth. And that's silly. In an age where we have all the tools at our disposal to come together and peacefully fix our problems as a national and global community, 
too many of us still have this knee-jerk reaction to turn to the most violent solution, a.k.a. the state, as a first resort. So, for instance, crowdfunding in this case would have been a much better route than wasting precious time and resources demanding the state equalize the situation by flipping the proverbial game board mid-game. i got to pump the brakes here because we're coming up on our break, but we'll come back to this in just a few moments. You may not be an academic, so it may be like, yeah, you know, I don't really care if it stays or goes. But it's the idea that uh, through government policy... It actually makes more sense to destroy information than to find another way to distribute it. That's a problem. We'll talk solutions just the other side of the break. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, here we are. Welcome back. I got to take just a second here and just tell you, I so appreciate you being a part of this audience. There are so many voices out there. There are so many competing versions of, you know, hey, here's what's happening. Thank you for giving this consideration. If it's a great fit, I'm happy. If it's not, I'm still happy that you at least gave it a chance and and hopefully found something of value. I'm sharing an article here from uh, the Foundation for Economic Education. This is written by Chris Campbell, How the Blockchain Prevented Digital Book Burning. And this is something I I was not aware of. I'm not deep into cryptocurrency or blockchain technology, but I wasn't aware that because some students at Gallaudet University, which is a university for uh, the hearing impaired, challenged Berkeley, UC Berkeley, because part of their online lectures or part of their their digital library was not accommodating the hearing impaired. And the Department of Justice got involved because that's who they contacted first off instead of contacting UC Berkeley and said, look, you're going to have to do this. You're going to violate the ADA if you don't make this accessible and, and accommodating for those with hearing disabilities. And essentially, they went to flip the board game in the middle of the game. Because UC Berkeley was like, you know, this is expensive. This is time consuming. It actually just makes more sense. We just need to remove those lectures from any kind of public access. We'll delete the whole library, I guess, so that we're not violating anybody's rights. We'll just prevent everybody from having access to this. Now, Brittany Hunter, writing for Fee.org, says, imagine... An alternative reality where instead of pursuing legal action against UC Berkeley, those who felt passionately about this matter joined together as a community and raised awareness and funds in order to provide the funding needed to have the 543 videos reformatted. If they had criticized by creating instead of litigating, not only would the problem have been solved in a more productive manner than it actually was, but all parties would actually benefit in the end. Hunter goes on. She says Berkeley wouldn't have to spend several months taking down its content. Those who wanted the content adapted for those with hearing impairments would not only have gotten what they wanted, but they would also have raised awareness and possible donors to their own school. Additionally, the entire world would have also continued to benefit from the use of Berkeley's material. So if this goes on, the digital pitchforks will rise. 
Chris Campbell says, if you haven't read Fahrenheit 451, Guy Montag, the protagonist, lives in a world where firefighters burn books. Actually, I think they're called firemen. Burn books, and the state controls the spread of knowledge completely. He says, you really should read the book. Now, we could very well have gone down that dark path, but I think, thankfully, we chose a different route. With the incredible rise of the alt-media, especially over the last year, he says, I think it's safe to say the war on your mind has been won. The pearls of wisdom surround you. You are responsible for your own ele- or your own education, not the state. And the more the state pers- pushes its arbitrary agendas on the flow of information, I predict the more digital pitchforks will rise. What if Ray Bradbury asks himself in his run-up to writing the book, firemen burned down houses instead of saving them? If only, he pondered, books can be saved. If you destroy all the physical books, how can you still save them? Well, if he were alive today, we would whisper a single word in his ear. Blockchain, Bradbury. Blockchain. Berkeley's 20,000 lectures, despite Berkeley pulling them offline via the DOJ's orders, were never deleted. They're still up. And they will be for as long as the Internet remains a thing because an enterprising blockchain-based company called, um, I I guess this is supposed to be Library, LBRY, copied all 20,000 of them before Berkeley took them down and they've made them permanently available online for free. LBRY, the team explains, is the first truly free and censorship-resistant way to exchange content. The LBRY protocol provides a completely decentralized network for discovering, distributing, and publishing all types of content and information from books to movies. Now, when publishing the lectures to LBRY, the content metadata is written to a public blockchain, making it permanently public and robust to interference. Then the content data itself is hosted via a peer-to-peer data network that offers economic incentives to ensure the data remains viable. This is superior to centralized or manual hosting, which is vulnerable to technical failure or other forms of attrition. So the LBRY team says, while other archive teams have also backed up these lectures using traditional methods, publishing them to LBRY offers greater openness, usability, and robustness. Now, if you want more information on how LBRY managed to rescue 20,000 world-class lectures from the digital book burners, there's a link at the end of the article. And Chris Campbell says, if you want more information on it, you know, um, you can click there. If you have something to say, you can contact him. But he says, this is how the war is won. No bullets necessary. Now, it's interesting because, you know, this was four years ago. And a lot has changed, you know, in the last two years, particularly. Be interesting to see if if, if Chris would uh, would amend anything that he says here or if, if it still stands. I love the idea that blockchain, for the reasons he stated, can preserve things. You know, not everybody's familiar with, you know, the, the burning of the library at Alexandria. People who are deep into the study of history, people who are deep into the study of philosophy, they still mourn the destruction of that library. So much of the world's history was was torched. So I think it's a great thing that we have access to this. And I guess it's, to, to just be blunt, it's another reason why I would not want to see government in any way exercising regularly regulatory control over blockchain technology. 
It's that decentralization that, that actually preserves what's worth preserving. And I say this as someone who is absolutely a neophyte. I don't know much about it. But I know I like the idea of keeping those, uh, those book burners at bay. All right, going to shift gears here one more time. And, you know, I spend very, very little time talking about what's happening in Washington, D.C. I spend very little time talking about the personalities involved. I think it's just a great big passion play. I think professional wrestling has more integrity in its storyline than what's going on in Washington, D.C. Now, having said that, it's worth paying attention to what's going on there, but... You know, the difference between paying attention and just like immersing yourself in it and soaking and marinating in it is is a little more fine than a lot of people realize. And there are people for whom, you know, political considerations and thinking drives every aspect of their thinking. So Glenn Greenwald recently put together an excellent article on how civil liberties are being trampled by the shameless opportunists and power seekers pushing that insurrection narrative in Congress's uh, 1-6 committee. By the way, I don't know if you if you caught this. Uh, I'm going to get into the, the meat of this article here in the next segment. But um, just recently, within the last few days, a judge came down on the side of releasing a 40-minute unedited video from the Capitol, you know, they've been sitting on about 14,000 hours. The U.S. government's been sitting on this video for 14,000 hours of video coverage. Well, this one 40-minute video was released showing people making entry to the Capitol. And I got to tell you, you know, if they they talk about it was a violent mob there to, to tear Congress out of there and to possibly execute them and so forth. No, it wasn't. You look at that 40-minute video, there is a group of people who come in in the very beginning, and, and they are so organized, and they are so purposeful in their movement. It would be very hard to believe that they were not trained, and, and possibly, you know, like CIA-trained or otherwise professionally trained operatives. They moved with purpose. They moved as a team, not a single wasted motion. They knew exactly what they were doing, and, and these were the ones who broke windows to get in and so forth, but... That's not what the video shows that, uh, that is so remarkable. What the video shows is the people who first came through the doors were followed by many others, many of whom are you know either charged or sitting in jail right now as political prisoners, who were waved in by Capitol Police officers. I mean, if you, if you are struggling with insomnia, you may want to sit down and put on this video, and I guarantee within about 40 minutes you will be sawing logs with the best of them. When we come back, we're going to talk about how this uh, committee meeting in Washington right now, this bipartisan committee, is trying to use the, the phrase insurrection to create a narrative that allows them to, to essentially uh, declare anybody who disagrees with them as a terrorist. It's very handy because there are no rules for dealing with terrorists, right? The U.S. government claims the ability to kill, imprison, torture, regardless of where they find them. You and I just were told, well, but that'll never be aimed at you. Hang on, we'll talk about it on the other side of the break. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. You spend a third of your life in bed. That's why we make the most comfortable sheets in the very best way. I'm Scott Tannen. Eight years ago, my wife Missy and I founded Bowling Branch to create the new standard in bedding. We source pure organic cotton and put workers' rights first. Today, Bowling Branch makes the highest quality sheets in the entire industry. You'll feel the difference of our famous signature sheets. They're made from pure organic cotton and get softer with every single wash. Now's the perfect time to try Bowling Branch sheets, pillows, bath towels, and so much more. Each is made with super soft organic cotton by workers who are paid fairly and have come to feel like family. It's time to make the better choice and get the new standard in bedding. Visit BowlingBranch.com today for free shipping and returns. Experience a new standard of comfort at BowlingBranch.com and take 15% off your first set of sheets with promo code GOLD. That's B-O-L-L and Branch.com. Promo code GOLD. Tell me why Relief Factor is so successful in lowering or eliminating pain. I'm often asked that question. Pete and Seth Talbot, the father and son founders of Relief Factor, tell me they believe our bodies were designed to heal. The doctors who formulated Relief Factor selected the four best ingredients, 100% drug-free ingredients that each help your body deal with inflammation. Order the three-week quick start now. Discount it to only $19.95 to see if it will work for you too. Call 800-500-8384. ReliefFactor.com. Angie's List is now Angie, and getting your to-do list done just got easier. Between back to school and with the holidays around the corner, it can feel like there's no time to tackle home projects. Whether you need help with emergency repairs or major upgrades, Angie matches you with top local pros who can get the job done right. Browse reviews, see upfront pricing, and instantly book hundreds of projects. Save time for what matters most. Book your next project at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot following is not an actor, but a real-life story from Trinity Debt Management. I had a lot of credit card debt, and I couldn't pay my bills. I was feeling so bad, I got to a point where I needed some help. So I reached out and contacted Trinity. If you're in debt and you need help, call Trinity at 1-800-990-6976 to talk to a certified counselor. They were able to take all of my different payments and put them all together. Trinity will consolidate your accounts into one one easy-to-manage monthly payment, put a stop to late fees and over-limit charges, reduce your interest, and possibly improve your credit score. You'll save thousands. And they were actually able to work with my creditors. I've been able to pay off close to $15,000 in the last 18 months. If your debt has you down, call Trinity at 1-800-990-6976. My name is Stephanie, and I'm debt-free for keeps. 1-800-990-6976. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, we are back. Got a great article here that I want to share with you from Glenn Greenwald. I'm gonna, I got to sing this guy's praises for just a moment. Glenn Greenwald is, I believe, one of the best journalists in the world today. He may be one of the most trusted voices that I turn to when I want a solid take on things. Now, that doesn't mean he's infallible, and it doesn't mean that I'm you know, telling you, you may not question him. I'm just saying that when it comes to to getting the facts straight and and to resisting the urge to politicize and, and to try to fit everything into this neat little ideological framework, very few journalists out there <clears throat> do it with 
Uh, very few journalists report with the same kind of integrity that Glenn Greenwald has. And, and it's kind of crazy because a lot of other journalists, I, I don't know if they're jealous of him or they're just angry that he's he's showing by his his good principles how unprincipled they are. But boy, do they resent him. They really think he's he's a bad person. You're just enabling, you know, the, the, the crazies out there to, you know, to to think for themselves, which it turns out that's that's kind of uh, that's almost akin to a crime. Thinking is illegal. I wonder if that's ever going to be a slogan one day. We're all in this together. Thinking is illegal. So the article is called Civil Liberties Are Being Trampled by Exploiting Insurrection Fears. Congress's 1-6 committee may be the worst abuse yet. And Greenwald, you know, he's he is not somebody to be taken lightly on, on such matters. I mean, this, this is one of the guys who helped to break the story of, of Edward Snowden. He's one of the people who who made it uh, made it possible for people to know what was going on. Here's what he says about the one six committee. He says when a population is placed in a state of sufficiently grave fear and anger regarding a perceived threat, concerns about the constitutionality, legality, and morality of measures adopted in the name of punishing the enemy typically disappear. All right, that makes sense, because the first priority, indeed the sole priority, is you got to crush the threat. Questions about the legality of actions ostensibly undertaken against the guilty parties are brushed aside as trivial annoyances at best or worst, or at worst they're castigated as efforts to sympathize with and protect those responsible for the danger. And he says, when a population is subsumed with pulsating fear and rage, there is little patience for seemingly abstract quibbles about legality or ethics. The craving for punishment, for vengeance, for protection is visceral and thus easily drowns out cerebral or rational impediments to satiating those primal impulses. And he gives the example of the 9-11 attack as a vivid illustration of that dynamic. The consensus view which formed immediately was that anything and everything possible should be done to crush the terrorists who directly or indirectly were responsible for that traumatic attack. Now, the few dissenters who attempted to raise doubts about the legality or morality of proposed responses, well, they were easily dismissed and marginalized when not ignored entirely. In fact, typically, they were vilified with the accusation that their constitutional and legal objections were frauds, mere pretexts to conceal their sympathy and even support for the terrorists. It took at least a year or two after that attack for there to be any space for questions about the legality, constitutionality, and morality of the U.S. response to 9-11 to be entertained at all. Now, Greenwald says for many liberals and Democrats in the U.S., 1-6 is the equivalent of 9-11. You don't have to speculate about it. Lots of them have said it explicitly. Some prominent Democrats in politics and media have even insisted January 6th was worse than 9-11. Joe Biden's speechwriters, when preparing for his his script for his April address to the joint session of Congress, called the three-hour riot the worst attack on our democracy since the Civil War. Liberal icon Representative Liz Cheney, whose father's legacy was cemented by years of casting 9-11 as the most barbaric attack ever seen, now serves as the vice chair of that committee, the 1-6 committee. In that role, she proclaims that the forces behind 1-6 represent a threat America has never seen before. 
The enabling resolution that created the select committee <clears throat> calls 1-6 one of the darkest days of our democracy. USA Today's editor David Mastillo published an op-ed whose sole point was a defense of the hysterical thesis from MSNBC analysts that 1-6 is at least as bad as 9-11, if not worse. And S.V. Date, the White House correspondent for America's, America's most nakedly partisan news outlet, the Huffington Post, published a series of tweets arguing that 1-6 was worse than 9-11 and that those behind it are more dangerous than Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda ever were. By the way, he's got the links to those tweets in the story. And Glenn Greenwald says, ever since the pro-Trump crowd was dispersed at the Capitol after a few hours of protests and riots, the same repressive climate that arose after 9-11 has prevailed. Mainstream political and media sectors instantly consecrated the narrative fully endorsed by the U.S. security state that the United States was attacked on 1-6 by domestic terrorists bent on insurrection and a coup. And they also claimed in unison that the ideology driving those right-wing domestic terrorists now poses the single most dangerous threat to the American homeland. A claim which the intelligence community was making even before 1-6 to argue for a new war on terror. Just like neocons wanted to invade and engineer regime, regime change in Iraq prior to 9-11 and then exploited 9-11 to achieve that long-held goal. So Greenwald writes, with those extremist and alarming premises fully implanted, there has been little tolerance for questions about whether proposed changes or responses, rather, for dealing with the 1-6 domestic terrorists and their incomparably dangerous ideology are excessive, illegal, unethical, or unconstitutional. Even before Joe Biden was inaugurated, his senior advisors made it clear that one of their top priorities was to enact a bill from Representative Adam Schiff now a member of the Select Committee on 1-6, to import the first war of terror, on terror rather, sorry, that was an interesting Freudian slip, wasn't it, onto domestic soil, <clears throat> even without enactment of a new law. Greenwald says there's no doubt that a second war on terror, this one domestic, has begun and is growing, all in the name of the 1-6 insurrection, and with little dissent or even public debate. Now he reminds us, following the post-9-11 script, Anyone voicing concerns about such responses to 1-6 is reflectively accused of harboring uh, sympathy for the plotters and their insurrectionary cause or minimizing the gravity of the Capitol riot. Questions or doubts about the proportionality or legality of government actions in the name of 1-6 are depicted as insincere proof that those voicing such doubts are acting not in defense of constitutional or legal principles, but out of clandestine camaraderie with right-wing domestic terrorists and their evil cause. That sounds about right, right? When it comes to 1-6 and those who were at the Capitol, there's no middle ground. The playbook's not new. Either you're with us or you're with the terrorists. That was the rigidly binary choice which President George W. Bush presented to Americans and the world when addressing Congress shortly after the 9-11 attack. So with that framework in place, anything short of unquestioning support for the Bush-Cheney administration and all its policies was, by definition, tantamount to providing aid and comfort to the terrorists and their allies. There was no middle ground, no third option, no such thing as ambivalence or reluctance. 
All of that uncertainty or doubt insisted the new war president was to be understood as standing with the terrorists. And that proven that that equation has proven irresistible ever since. Spanning myriad political positions and cultural issues, Dr. Ibram X. Kendi's insistence that one either fully embrace what he regards as the program of anti-racism or be guilty by definition of supporting racism. Again, no middle ground, no space for neutrality, no room for ambivalence about any of the dogmatic planks perfectly tracks this manipulative formula. Now, there is much more to this essay including thoughts on the unconstitutionality of the issue of the the committee itself and what they're trying to accomplish. Glenn Greenwald points out, when crimes are committed in the United States, there are two branches of government and only two vested by the Constitution with the power to investigate criminal suspects and adjudicate guilt. The executive branch through the FBI and DOJ and the judiciary. In other words, Congress has no role to play in any of that for good and important reasons. Greenwald says the Constitution places limits on what the executive branch and judiciary can do when investigating subjects. Interesting stuff. It's a fascinating article. You may want to subscribe to Glenn's Substack. He'll send you emails out every time he publishes something, and what he publishes is definitely worth your time and worth your consideration. Once again, a shout-out to MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Appreciate them being my sponsors. Thank you for being a part of my audience. This is The Brian Hyde Show.